0: I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If uh, you've been around long enough, you remember about 20 years ago, the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy movies was was released, Fellowship of the Ring. And if you saw that in the theater, I remember this, that that the movie sort of abruptly ends. You remember? And everybody's complaining about what happens. They obviously haven't read the books and all those sorts of things. Well, it's interesting, on, on the second movie for The Two Towers... It literally picks right back up where the first movie left off. There is no recap. There is no voiceover. There is no previously on Survivor or any of that sort of stuff, right? And and folks, I remember feeling just a little bit lost. and, and, And that might be your experience this morning because we are essentially in part two of what is, in essence, one very long sermon that we started last week. You know, Paul has been addressing in... First um, Timothy two, the church in Ephesus, particularly the issue of how the men and women of the church should be relating together when they come together as the people of god and and last week we, we really looked at what is more what I would kind of call the vision or the backdrop or the foundation, sort of the underpinnings of of why Paul gives Um, These teachings that he does. And so this morning in part two, we're going to be actually diving into the text itself. So if you haven't listened to last week or watched last week, repent, number one, Um, cancel Netflix this afternoon, go on and watch it. But remember, The Two Towers was an extraordinary movie in its own right. So anyway, here we go. I'm going to invite you, if you can or willing and able to stand as we read God's word this morning, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 2, I'm going to read verses 8 through 15, then we'll dive in. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with self-control. So, Lord, we always need your help. We always need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and heart and mind to the wonders of your word. And we particularly feel that when we come to a text, Lord, that we know, culturally speaking, um, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so, Father, but we, we stand against that spirit. You tell us later, Paul does that all scripture is God breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we claim that promise over this passage. We ask that you would guide us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. I'll reference again what I just said in the prayer. Um, Because the Bible's teaching on men and women and sexual ethics and gender um, is not just a matter of cultural offense any longer. It's it's, it's not just offensive, but it's often viewed as hateful or dangerous. There can be an an, an impulse, I think, for those of us who are believers, who are part of God's church, who take the word of God seriously. There there can be an impulse that, that... We just want to to soften this a little bit, right? We want to moderate it. We want to reimagine it. We want to refine it. We want to sand off the rough edges around it. Because after all, Pastor Paul, this is, God's called us to reach a culture. God calls us to reach a people. And this sort of teaching just lands like the proverbial thud. And one of the things that we we want to recognize right off the top, church, is that that's not the way Paul thinks about these things. Paul has a burden and a heart for all people. Paul has just told us a few verses earlier that God desires all men to be saved, all kinds and types of men and women. Please understand, church, no one had a bigger heart for people than the apostle Paul apostle Paul had massive street cred, right? The apostle Paul gave up a life in the pharisaical penthouse, literally the top of the heap, wealthy, um, prestigious, um, at the top of his career ladder. He gave it all up in order to take the gospel to the world, to proclaim Jesus. The apostle Paul endured more than most of us will ever endure in this life for the sake of Of all people, the gospel, whether it was being stoned or kicked out of cities or presiding over riots or being arrested on false charges or being in shipwrecks. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So let's not make the mistake that the Apostle Paul didn't understand our culture. Because if he did, he certainly would have said something very differently right here. No, no, no. Paul had a heart for all people. And Paul saw the gathered church, what we're doing here right now, as an opportunity for the people of God to display the beauty of God by not hiding God's design for men and women, but by proclaiming it, by portraying it, by living it out. And what we have seen historically and paradoxically, I might add, That it's not accommodation that ultimately makes the gospel winsome to people. See, we we talked about this last week, that if all the church has is just a very watered-down version of what the world already offers, then what 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 does the world need the church for? Paradoxically, we've seen over and over throughout the history of the church that it's the countercultural witness of the gospel that is her most compelling witness. And that is what Paul charges us to this morning. So, so two points this morning as we as we delve into this text, which which admittedly is one of the most controversial texts in all of the Bible. But as I hope and pray, you'll see, it's one of the most beautiful texts in all the Bible. So we're going to talk about two two things Paul raises for us. We're talking about propriety with the people of God, and we're going to talk about proclamation with the people of God. So let's talk about propriety first. Look down in verses 8 and 9, and it's very clear that in Ephesus, these meetings or gatherings that they were having were massively disruptive. They were massively confusing. Um, Everyone was doing what was sort of right in their own eyes. For example, verse 8, it says that instead of praying, men were, were arguing. They were angry. They were quarreling. Instead of humbly leading the church in sort of a posture of humility and of humble prayer, They were sort of presiding over their take, their arguments, their divisions, their conflicts, their perspectives, and people were coming in and they weren't seeing men lifting hands in holy prayer. They were seeing men giving one another the what for. The women, for their part, were also drawing undue attention to themselves, and it wasn't through arguing and public dissension. It was more by the way they were dressing and behaving. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But the irony of all of this is that Paul would say the church gathered is to be the one place that is distinctively a light in darkness. It's a city set on the hill. It's to be an agent of reconciliation and forgiveness and peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the cross of Jesus Christ, Instead, in Ephesus, the church had become self-absorbed, self-oriented. Everyone was staking a claim to their own turf. They wanted to do relationships and they wanted to do church the way they wanted to do relationships in the church. And the heck with everybody else. And Paul looked at all of it and said, this is a massive gospel disruption. Now, here's the subtext from Paul, church. How are you, you can imagine him saying to them, and I think he's saying to us, how are you, church, going to offer up life to a dying world if you are literally sucking the life out of one another? This is why he references this idea of having holy hands. He's he's speaking about. The call for the people of God to have a clear conscience, to, to, be, to be working through <clears throat> personal relationships, pursuing peace with one another as the people of God. This is, and I think there's an echo of Jesus' teaching here, right? Where Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, famous teachings, he looked at the people and he said, listen, you want to come worship God, but you all hate each other. So, 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 so don't come here with sacrifices. Don't come here with your gifts and offerings. If you're, if you're in church, Paul, Jesus says, and you know your brother hates you, and you know there's something between you and your brother or sister, or there is some long-standing unresolved conflict, go deal with it. Go deal with it go make peace with your brother, go reconcile, go ask for forgiveness, go humble yourself, then come back in here and worship me and call upon me. So there's very much an echo of that when Paul talks about this idea of the people of God having holy hands. That's what he's referring to. So how does Paul tell them to address their specific situation? And what we want to be be real careful to do here is to make make a distinction for Oaks between principles and practices, okay? And let me explain what I mean. Principles are timeless truths that apply in every time and in every place, everywhere, eternally, or at least in this life. Those are those truths that are that are are to be followed and obeyed by God's people in all times and all places. Practices, on the other hand, are the means by which we carry out those principles. So by definition, principles don't change. Practices can and might change according to the specific cultural context that we live in. Let me give an example. So the New Testament tells us, let the word of God dwell richly in you. That's a timeless principle. It's a timeless truth. But what that looked like for a New Testament believer 2,000 years ago is probably, while it's similar in many ways, it's also different than you in many ways. Just think about technologically. At that time, 2,000 years ago, many people couldn't even read. And so, what would happen is that God's people would gather up and these letters from the apostles would be read. And there was an oral tradition that they would pass down from parent to child or from church member to church member as they studied the Old Testament scriptures, as they read the letters from the apostles, as they memorized and rehearsed. I see some of you guys, ladies, running down the road with your AirPods on. I know you're not listening to the Rolling Stones, right? You've got to be listening to John Piper, right? Or or, or Tim Keller, or or R.C. Sproul, or but you, you get what I'm saying? Like like when you're when you're exercising, when you're going about your day, what is available to us technologically far surpasses right anything ever available to anyone else in the history of the world. What an opportunity we have, right? Just by virtue of this little thing we hold in our hand, the resources. That are available to us to help us let the word of God dwell richly. That weren't available then. Same principle, right? Same principle, different practices. What are those principles and practices here? Because there's going to be things that that, that we want to take from this text about propriety and worship. That are ongoing principles forever until Jesus returns. And there's other things that are practices that were specific to them, but apply to us in a different way. So what are the principles? Number one for men, okay, listen up, prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Close your mouth in relationship to one another, Paul says. Open your mouth and hearts in relationship to Jesus. Your, your, your corporate life needs to be much more characterized by your vertical communication with God than your horizontal communication with one another. So prayerfulness. For the women, Paul says, your ongoing, enduring principle is to pursue modesty. To to conduct yourself and your dress in every other way, that that does not draw undue attention to yourself. Those Those are the principles that I see here in the text. Now, the practices, let me say a couple of things about this. Paul directs the men that as they're praying, they're to raise their hands. We don't raise our hands typically in the same way that they did there when they prayed. Well, this has a background to it, right? So as part of the Jewish background, um, culturally speaking, um, men would always raise their hands as a sign of ceremonial cleanliness. After offering sacrifices and being ceremonially washed, they would raise their hands to say, I'm ceremonially pure. Over time, the raising of hands began to be sort of symbolized with this idea of, I am humbly coming and receiving from God. So it was a cultural practice by which they demonstrated this timeless principle of being prayerful, and the essence of being prayerful is I'm coming and I'm receiving from God. For the women in that context, in that culture, and there's a lot of research that's, that's been done on this, that these, whatever these particular dress styles, hairstyles, modesty issues, they were ones that in that particular context denoted uh, potentially sexual availability, or the imitation of idol and temple worship or the most fashionable um, dresses and hairstyles of that day that communicated to everyone around you that I am, well, I was going to single and ready to mingle. Is that enough? That's essentially what was being said here, but not in the good way right? So Paul tells them, don't dress like that, okay, because people are going to mistake what you're wanting to communicate. Now, what does this mean for us, okay? Does this mean like as men, we have to wave our hands in the air like we don't care? I'm a child of the 80s. You get it, right? Women, no more visit to hotheads. I I see a lot of jewelry here. Okay, where where does this apply? Because I think Paul is pushing us, and this is, I think, a huge issue for us as a church this season, not just us, but the church at large. He's pointing us towards a supra principle, okay? And here it is. When it comes to being the people of God, we need to learn the beauty of self-forgetfulness. We need to learn the beauty and the majesty of not drawing undue attention to ourselves By whatever means that we might draw undue attention. See, in Ephesus, there was a spirit of no one's going to tell me what to do. There was a spirit of I can talk the way I want, I can dress the way I want. If this was in a cultural equivalent, I can post anything that I want, I can be who I want to be, I'm just being me right? You be you. I'm just being me. Rights, preferences, my freedoms, my way. And of course, in in our context, I'm just being me. Oftentimes, let's be honest, means it's all about me. But see, the call to be a part of God's people in every time and in every way, in every age, is the call to self-forgetfulness, See, and and you've heard me mention this before, and this this comes from Tim Keller. The solution to being self-absorbed or the solution to putting yourself in the center of everything, The, the, the solution to thinking too much of yourself is not to think less of yourself. The solution to thinking too much of yourself is to think of yourself less. See, when we think of ourselves less we no longer put our preferences whether it's about dress or social media or dialogue or concerns it it doesn't put no longer puts those at the center instead it puts the gospel at the center instead it puts our neighbor at the center in in instead it puts other people's perspectives at the center. See, as we turn to this future, and and by God's grace, hopefully this season is is winding down, right? We need a new category in terms of gathering as God's people. And it's simply this, and I have to freely confess, this has oftentimes not been where I've lived. We need a new category. It's simply this, how do the decisions I make How do the things that I decide I'm going to do or not do, whether it's how I gather or how I'm in community or the relationships I'm going to have or not have, how much of this is driven by love? How much is driven by neighbor? How much of this is driven by gospel witness versus, let's just be honest, how much of this is just driven because it's about me? See, that's what Paul is calling the church here in Ephesus to set aside. He's calling them to set aside the things that seem most important to them, whether it's the arguments and the conflicts they were having, or the way they were dressing, or the way they were talking, to a, to a call of just sober propriety. He's calling them to a gospel humility that imitates Christ. Christ. Church, what a great model for us this season. As we come out of here, as we begin thinking, not or what are my rights, privileges, preferences, choices, but rather, let me look to Jesus. Because what does Paul tell us in Philippians 2? Jesus did not consider his rights and his privileges, what? Something to be grasped. Something to be held on to. He, he became obedient. He became a servant. He opened his hand. He willingly gave those things up by laying his life down for us. He laid his life down. That's the gospel. And Paul is saying, church, what does it mean to humbly and graciously walk out the gospel with one another as the family of God? And we pray for grace and humility and patience and self-control with one another as we do them because the world is watching. Because the world is watching. That's Paul's concern. He says they're coming in, church, and they don't see any difference in what you're doing and then what the world is doing. You've made it about yourself. And he's saying, don't make it about yourself. Make it about Jesus. Do you know, and I've said this this season, it's okay to say, I'm not going to exercise my right. You are allowed for the sake of the gospel and your brother and sister in Christ to lay aside your claim on whatever it is that might be burning in your heart this season for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. That's what Paul is exhorting us to with propriety. Now let's look at secondly and finally, proclamation. Proclamation. And of course, this brings us to verse 11, which is undoubtedly um, one of the more stickier controversial verses in the New Testament. Let me read it for us. It's actually 11 and 12. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet or silent. And it seems that in the public gatherings in Ephesus, like this, women were exercising authority over the life of the church through their teaching. And as we're going to see next week in 1 Timothy 3, this was a responsibility, a duty, a charge that was given to the qualified men of the church called elders, the fathers of the church, to steward the doctrinal instruction of the church. But before we talk about in detail what Paul says here women are not to do, there's a little line in here that we could be tempted to sort of view as a throwaway line. But it actually tells us very much about the Apostle Paul's heart for both men and women in the life of the church. So look at verse 11. This is a command, by the way, and it's given to both men and women in the church, and the leaders of the church, and he says this, let a woman learn. Now, the reason that that is significant is that in Jewish culture up to this point, and this was, by the way, not an Old Testament um, theological teaching. This was more of a cultural distinctive that had happened over time. But in Jewish tradition, it was the men who would sit at the front of the synagogue and learn they would have their notes out they would be taking they would be jotting down they would be listening to the rabbi and the teaching the women were in the back and their job was merely to be seen and not heard just listen and if you're a teacher in here you know the big difference between students who are listening only versus learning don't you there, there, there's a kid in the, in the class that may be listening, but they're not absorbing. They're not being a student. They're not learning. They're not taking in the information and assimilating it into their heart, mind, and, and soul. But Paul says, interestingly, everyone in the church is to be a learner. It's assumed by the church here that, that, that men are, are learning. But Paul says, let me make this very clear. Women are to learn too. As image bearers, as people who are made in the image of God, who are co-heirs in Christ with their male brothers, okay, in Christ, they are to learn on an equal footing as the brothers. And this, by the way, was completely revolutionary. Um, this was this was countercultural. Um, we see this, by the way, all throughout the New Testament when we see the prominent role that women played in the life and ministry of the apostles. We're going to talk about this when we get to deacons in a couple of weeks. But even in the ministry of Jesus, where women were the first witnesses to the resurrection, which at that time was um, was again, I use the term revolutionary. And it was the Christian faith and worldview that revolutionized men and women relationships in the ancient world. And we are here today living on that borrowed capital, even as we speak. And so Paul is, Paul is being very clear. Women have equal access to God. They are to be co-heirs in learning. And here's just a little nugget just, just to think about for all of us. Church, men, women... Children, boys, girls, all of us, do you think of yourself as a learner? Are you someone who comes to church on a Sunday or watches online on a Sunday with a posture of wanting to learn, of of having a posture of wanting to grow, of having a posture of wanting to receive and grow and mature in your faith? Do you come to your community group with a posture of wanting to be a learner, learning from your brothers and sisters in Christ, learning from other saints? Do you have a posture of being a learner in your, in your personal devotional life, of what you're reading, of what you're studying, of, of how you're assimilating knowledge and truth into your soul? And so, so before we, we get into some of the restrictions Paul has here, we have to learn just the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying. We are all, all of us, to be learners. And this is why as a church family, we think about learning theological knowledge, truth, doctrine, scripture. Um, we want to see that permeated into every area of our church life, from little children to the mature saints, right, among us. Community groups to Bible studies, to our marriage ministry, to our restore ministry, to our students, to our men's studies, women's studies. This is, this is, this is at the heart of this. Now, Paul puts a couple of qualifications on this learning. Number one, he says to the women, learn in silence. This obviously... And we, again, we have to use the principle of scripture interprets scripture, okay? Because as one of my seminary professors said, you can quote scripture out of context and commit heresy, right? You can say a lot of dumb things, okay? Just by quoting the Bible out of context. This obviously does not mean there's an absolute prohibition against women speaking at church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about the public worship of the church, he makes it very clear that women are speaking, that women are praying, that women are prophesying. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 4 that when the church comes together, they are singing together psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. They're exhorting and admonishing and encouraging one another. So this obviously doesn't mean an absolute prohibition against speaking. Nor does it mean it's an absolute prohibition from teaching. Because in Titus 2, women, you are commanded to teach one another, older women to younger women. We, we even see this on a private instructional level in the book of Acts. It's interesting. Apollos is in Ephesus, same church. He's preaching and teaching, and Priscilla and Aquila, husband-wife team, they're listening to Apollos. And you imagine one of them leans over to the other and says, uh, Apollos kind of missed that one, right? He didn't quite get that right. So what does it say they do? Rebuke him publicly? No. They took him aside, both of them, husband, wife, and instructed Apollos. I am thankful that we have women sages in this church galore who are just overflowing with wisdom, who are overflowing with knowledge and prayerful hearts Men, where would we be without our wives? I mean, we could go on and on and on. What is Paul then specifically saying about this prohibition, about the idea that women should learn in silence and not teach men? I think Paul, I think it's very clear from the context, is talking specifically about the kind of public teaching and proclamation that represents the theology, doctrine, and instruction of the church. In other words, what we're doing right here. That, that, that Paul says that it is to elders, male elders, qualified male elders, that God has given this responsibility to instruct, to lead, and to preside over and shepherd the body of Christ, the family of God, um, by what we teach Guys, the, 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 by what we proclaim, by what we preach, the elders are responsible for the doctrine of this church. If there's ever a point in time where, where, as elders, we're saying, well, we had no idea, that is a major red flag, right? That is a major red flag. And Paul is saying, Paul is exhorting the church here in Ephesus and us to a male pattern of qualified leadership when it comes to doctrinal instruction, particularly okay, women not teaching men. And Paul would say that to deviate from this pattern, and I don't want to preach last week's message again, and you're like, thank you very much, that would be helpful. Not To, to deviate from this pattern would subvert the very design of the Godhead itself. Because male and female relationships are patterned after the Trinity and the order and design of the Trinity. And so I think what Paul, for our context, I think what Paul is making clear is that he is referencing in this text the preaching and teaching that is to be done by the gathered body. And that doesn't necessarily mean just in a public worship setting. I think he's talking about all of those contexts, okay, where there is an authoritative teaching done in the life of the church. Now, I know saying that, that that will raise 10 other questions, and it's all the what about questions, right? Well, Pastor Paul, what about, what about community groups? What about reengage? What about restore? What about conferences? What about Sunday school's class? What about the, the testimonies in church? And let me just say, if, if, if the way that we approach those things is simply to say, I need, Pastor Paul, right now a yes or no. Is it okay if blank? We've completely missed what Paul is talking about here. If Paul were here, I think he would say, how do we as a church family honor the principle and the pattern of spiritual fatherhood and authority in this church? And of course, that will vary depending upon context. Let, let me just give you one example so it's not all ethereal way up here. Community groups. See, we um, here at Four Oaks have a practice that men lead community groups. Yes, in, in su- with support from their wives and hosting and all those sorts of things, but why is that? Why, why do we, we have men leading co-ed groups, not women leading co-ed groups? Well, in our context, we believe that community groups for us, that the community group leader is not just a facilitator, right? The, the, The community group leader is actually an extension of the pastors and elders in the church, that it's through community groups that we shepherd. It's through community groups that we discuss and apply the sermon. It's through community groups that the ministry of the pastors and elders to shepherd the body of Christ is multiplied and extended. There's only 12 or 14 of us as pastors and elders. Our reach by definition will be limited in terms of how many people we can actually personally do that with, but we multiply shepherding, we multiply discipleship through our community group structure. Now, that's just one example, but you need to know that that's the sort of thing the elders have to wrestle with. We're always wrestling with this, right? How do we empower women in their God-given be- gifts and abilities to be learners, and according to Titus 2, teachers in a way that honors God's eternal design? Now, there is another option here in the text. And it's one that many more progressive evangelical scholars have taken, particularly in this day and age. And it's simply to dismiss this out of hand, right? That, come on, Pastor Paul, let's get real. This, these texts are culturally bound. There, there, there is, what was happening in Ephesus was a bad stuff, but, but we, we're a different situation now. We have resources available for women. We have, we're we're, we're in a totally different context. And, And many would advocate for what we would call an egalitarian position, and here's what we mean. A complementarian position is what I've just been articulating now, which is God made men and women equal in his image, the same in the image of God, but different in function and role in the home and the church. Egalitarianism says, God has made male and female in his image, okay, um, equal. And there is to be no distinctions in roles and responsibilities in the home or the church. None whatsoever. They can, those are interchangeable. It doesn't matter who does what. And so there would be a position under that egalitarian strain to say, we need to abolish all of that sort of thinking. Now, in my mind, that, that not only does that go against 2,000 years of historical Orthodox Christian doctrine by and large, but it also doesn't jive with the text. Look back at the text for a second. Because Paul doesn't just give us a command and directives, he actually gives us a reason, which is so helpful. So look at verse 13. Why, why is a woman to remain quiet? Why is she not to exercise authority over a man In the way that we've been talking. Verse 13 for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So, in other words, here is a positive affirmation from Paul that that when man was created first, when Adam was created first, this was meant to communicate a divine order. That it was that this is enduring, it is ongoing, it's not grounded in cultural realities. It's grounded in the creation design. Adam created first, then woman. Then Paul also has a negative affirmation. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. A lot of interpreters, or some, have taken this to mean that women are more gullible than men. That's why they shouldn't lead in the home or the church. That they're more easily deceived. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. Paul means that when Eve sinned, it was at the very point where she subverted the authority of Adam as the head, her head, in the garden. That in other words, she subverted his authority by leading and speaking in his place as the spiritual leader. Adam was silent. Adam failed in his leadership. And by the way, that's why, men, God comes to Adam first. He doesn't come to Eve first. Isn't that interesting? It's why Paul says that it's in Adam all people have been have fallen into sin. Okay? Let me just say this again, men. The family... Rises and falls on your leadership as a man, and so does the church. Men, if you don't like where you are maritally, if you don't like where you are in your parenting, if you don't like where you are in your family, by God's grace, under the power of the Spirit, I simply say, Fix it. Fix it. That's your divine call. And what Paul is doing here. Is he is reordering the chaos in Ephesus. And he's exhorting the church to go back to the original design. And he encourages women to receive with joy their God-given unique role as image bearers. And this brings us to the, the last controversial piece of this text, verse 15: yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, what does what does that mean? Obviously, this does not mean you have to have a child to be saved. Obviously, this doesn't mean that you are saved by having a child, like like having a birth is some sort of sacrament, right? Or that you're given as women a special spiritual status with God by having a child. I know many of you, um, you can't have children, Or don't have children. Either you're single or divorced or you're, for other reasons, you're not able to have children. I don't think that, again, that's what Paul is speaking to. Actually, I think he's saying one of the most profound things that he can say to you as a woman. What this is speaking to, ladies, is the fundamental thing that distinguishes men and women, and that is the ability to have children. See, every part of a woman's biology, anatomy, chemical makeup is all oriented around that reality. Even if you don't have children, ladies, it's true. It's true. It's the sin qua non, or without which there is none, of being a woman. So when Paul is extolling childbearing, he simply, as an example, as a type, he is calling women to receive with joy their, their image-bearing role as women, of which child rearing is the most obvious example. I think that's what Paul is saying here. And it's interesting that he chooses childbearing, because you understand this for those of you who have children. There is no greater human sacrifice in the world than bearing and caring for a child. It is the very essence, moms, is it not? of giving away your very self, of sacrificing all of your own needs, physical, psychological, spiritual, and otherwise at times, in order to nurture this life. And in calling women to embrace their femininity, and in calling women to embrace their God-given roles as women, Paul seems to be saying, here, the greatest example we have, women, of this happening is the gospel itself. That, that Jesus, in every way, subverted all of his desires, titles, rights, and privileges for the sake of laying his life down for his people. And we know that much of God's calling, ladies, in your life centers around that idea of self-sacrifice. And God wants you to know, I hear you. I see you. I mean, remember when Hagar, we studied this in Genesis, is wandering out in the wilderness and wants to die, God saw her. God heard her. And this is the kind of sacrifice That has typified the women of God for thousands of years, and it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. So, church, as we leave chapter two, this is a great call, a reminder to us that what we do in the home and the church, the patterns of manhood and womanhood that we pursue, are telling a story, they're telling a parable. They're a living, breathing demonstration of what God is like. That He is both a unity and a diversity, as we talked about last week. That He is both of one essence, but so diversified in His function as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, as the people of God, are called to image that by our distinctiveness of what it means to be men and women in the home and church. For the sake of the gospel, let's pray. Lord, give us.